We have another family member that would like, uh, or another family that would like to become members of our church family. Amy Richmond, where are you? Can we get you to stand up real quick? Amy, welcome. She's sitting right back here. Really glad that you're going to be a part of our church family. Welcome. Uh, we are in a series on the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5 that we are calling Untwisted. And the reason for that is that human beings are not what they were created to be. They are not. I mean, the evidence is all over the place. Uh, we, we, we see it on the television. We read about it in the papers, the magazines. It's, it's all over the Internet. Humans are not what they were created to be. Human beings, in fact, are twisted. They are twisted. They are warped. They are bent because of our God problem. But the gospel of Christ is really good news. And it's about grace because God loves to untwist what is twisted. God loves to untwist what is twisted. The untwisting of our twisted lives is done through the power of the Spirit as we walk with the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And that's the grace. To become the kind of humans that we were created to be through being forgiven by God. We can go to bed every night guilt-free clean conscience because we have been forgiven and continue to be forgiven on a daily basis. We've been reconciled to God. God doesn't just forgive us and say, okay, forgiven, everything's fine. You go your way, I go my way. Part of the gospel is not only are our sins forgiven, but we have been reconciled to God. We've become a part of His forever family. We are redeemed. We are transformed into the likeness of His Son, and one day we're going to experience the resurrection. That my friends, is the greatest offer that a human being will ever receive in this life. The offer to become a part of God's kingdom, to become a part of God's family forever and ever. Now, we have already looked at four of these nine kingdom of God virtues, or fruit of the Spirit. There are nine fruit of the Spirit, and we've looked at four. The first one is love. Love is to will the good of others. When we love the way that God loves, we are not seeing what we can get out of somebody else. We're not loving them for what we can get out of them. We're not loving them to a certain point and then no further. When we love people and will their good, we are seeking to give them the experience of an extraordinary love that brings out the best in them. People that come into the presence of people that are developing this extraordinary kind of love by God's power are the kind of people that when people come into their presence, they begin to flourish and they begin to thrive. And then from love, joy. Joy we define as the sign of a forever healing. It is the sense of everything important in my life, everything important that I will ever need has ultimately been taken care of. It is the sense that I have everything that I need. No, joy is not the absence of suffering, but it overlaps suffering. So we go from love and joy to peace. We define peace as that kingdom cure for anxiety. Peace is not the opposite of war. Peace is the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety is the sense that things are falling apart, that there's this rumble underneath, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's the sense that things are unraveling, coming loose at the seams. The Hebrew word for peace that we all know is shalom. 
And shalom doesn't mean peace as in peace, but it means the coming together of wholesomeness and everything that is to be together and full has been brought back together. It is the sense that everything flying apart is coming back together, coming back home, becoming whole, becoming one. It is reunited. And then last week we looked at patience. Patience, the virtue that we wish everybody else had. But patience we define as learning to live with someone else being in control. It's somebody else being in control. We're not patient for patience' sake. We are, we are patient for the sake of others. The way that God is patient with us for our sake. This morning we're going to consider the fifth virtue, and that is kindness. Now, if you were of age and aware of things in the 90s, uh, you may remember this bumper sticker that was all over the place. It was very famous. Practice random kindness, senseless acts of beauty. Wildly popular. It was all over the place. Ruined a lot of bumpers on a bunch of cars. But it put a smile on a lot of people's face and gave them kind of a direction or an attitude to have during the day. It was, it was, it was wildly popular, and it was in many ways very successful. I mean, who could not use a little bit more niceness in the world. But with all of that said, just a, just a little tiny question. If it is random and it is senseless, does it have any lasting meaning? But if it is random and senseless, does it have any lasting meaning? Let's just leave that question just for a minute. Uh, recently, I've been working through Chris Arnaid's book, Dig- Dignity, Seeking Respect in the Back Row, America. Arnaid spent a lot of time on Wall Street, made a ton of money, left Wall Street and began exploring what he called the back row. His own life, his, uh, his own personal life ref- reflected really in a metaphorical way, you know, life on the front row of a class. It was about achievement, it was about acclaim, it was about confidence, a confidence that success is attainable. It was about ambition, it was about money and lots of it. And after nearly two decades on Wall Street, he began a journey throughout America. I mean, all of these small little burgs and towns and villages across the United States of Rust Belt, north and south. He began a journey to discover and understand the people who had metaphorically been on the back row. For a couple of years, he traveled across the states interviewing and photographing people. The book is sort of an odd coffee table book. It's filled with text, but lots of really captivating pictures. He was photographing people who represented the back row of America. It is a book about poverty, joblessness. It is about racism. It is about dwindling opportunities and options. It is about abuse, and it is about addictions. And Arnaid, who was not a follower of Jesus, though, at the very, towards the beginning of the book, has one whole chapter dedicated to the presence of the church in these places across the United States where hope had left a long time ago. And reading through the book, looking at the pictures, it made me wonder a little bit if these folk needed and need more than random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Dallas Willard, who many of you have read, wrote the book The Divine Conspiracy back in the mid-90s, 
uh, Willard was kind of troubled by the bumper sticker. And in his book, he said, maybe what we need to do is practice routinely purposeful kindness and deeply intelligent acts of beauty. Now, if you've read anything by Dallas Willard, you know that he puts things in in sort of awkward ways, but you get the sense. Random kindness may put a smile on someone's face. A random act of kindness may make somebody's hour. But routinely, purposeful acts of kindness change lives. So what is kindness? There is in the Bible a lot of overlapping of meaning, of the Greek word Christotes in Greek, but it boils down really to a demonstration of love to others, practical manifestations of, of love and of goodness to other people. If we have defined love as the, the, the attitude to will the good of others, then our definition of kindness is this. Kindness is love in action. It's not original with me. You probably have seen it all over the internet, but kindness is love in action. Philip Kennison, who writes on the fruit of the Spirit, writes that virtues or or dispositions are often profoundly displayed through stories. And you know as well as I do, as you've read the Bible from Genesis to the maps, that there are lots of stories, lots of examples of kindness in the Bible. Stories like 2 Samuel chapter 9, where David has united the kingdom, everything is good, he has a chance to think, and he remembers his best friend Jonathan who had been killed earlier. And he wants to know, is there anybody in the kingdom that he can show the kindness of God to? And there is the word that comes to him that a son of Jonathan, a fellow by the name of Mephibosheth, who has been crippled in both legs out in a place called Lodabar, which means no thing, out in the middle of nowhere, that is who David wants to show kindness to and brings him in to live in the king's house and to eat at the king's table. It's a fabulous story. But my favorite, I think, is found in John 4. It's a Samaritan woman. And the story, to understand what's happening with the Samaritan woman, you need, in John chapter 4, you need to to know John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is baptizing, although it's not he that's baptizing, it's his disciples, more disciples than John the Baptist. And there's this little tussle that is created between John's disciple and Jesus' disciples. And there's that great passage at the end of John 3 where he says, Jesus has got to become greater and I've got to become less. But it is a wildly spectacular, successful time for Jesus as he's making disciples and bringing more and more people into the kingdom of God. And where we would think, well, we need to put a tent up and this is where we're going to stay. Success, success, success. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going north. Disciples are wondering, what in the world? I mean, it doesn't make sense. But Jesus says, come. And they go. And at the beginning of John chapter 4, they come to a village in Samaria called Sychar. And Jesus sits down by a well, a very famous well near the village of Sychar. It's the middle of the day. Everybody's tired. He sends the disciples into the village to get some food. And here comes a Samaritan woman to draw water in the middle of the day. Comes to draw water. And Jesus, tired, dusty, thirsty, he asks for a drink. Now, in our culture, not a big deal. I mean, every day you and I go through drive-in and we ask the women behind the, the, the window for something to eat and, to something, and something to drink. 
it's not a big deal. But it was in Jesus' culture. For him, in the middle of nowhere, by themselves, he a Jew, she a Samaritan, he a man, she a woman, to ask for a drink. And it's not lost on her. She says, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And just in case somebody might read John's Gospel and not get it, John has a little parenthetical statement where he says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And so he's sitting there, she shows up, he asks for a drink. She goes, what in the world is happening here? Jewish man, Samaritan woman, this ought not to be. But a conversation ensues. And Jesus talks to her. She asks questions. And in the end, there's just something that overcomes her. She's so excited that this man is the Messiah. She runs back to the village and she tells everyone and a whole village is converted. Do you know how it started? Three acts of kindness. Three acts of kindness. The honorable Jewish man speaking with the dishonorable Samaritan woman. You ever wonder why she's toting water in the middle of the day, which means that she's not doing it in the cool of the morning, cool of the evening with the other women of the village getting the water that they need for cooking and bathing and drinking and for the day. The problem, it comes out, is that she has been in so many messed up relationships with men that she's basically kind of given up on marriage. And, and, and she's just cohabitating with a guy. Number two, it is the willingness to drink from her disreputable hand and cup. You know, in this culture, there is so much shame that is concerning everyone in the way that they think about life. And here he is, you know, in the middle of his ministry, and he's, he's meeting with prostitutes and people like Zacchaeus, tax collector, not afraid to talk to lepers. And in this specific moment, in this village, in all of time, he is talking to a woman that nobody wanted to be seen with. But he's willing to take the cup from her hand. And whatever anybody might think about that, he didn't really care. And then number three, the patience to dignify her questions with answers. One of the kindest things that anybody can do is just sit down and talk. Have a conversation. Be patient and answer honestly and truthfully questions. And and Jesus' kindness to her at that very moment, in in that moment where every day she is reminded that the world can be unkind, opened her heart up to the possibility that her tangled and messy life could become untwisted. And that it would be God who would untwist it. God is kind to people who have gone through a divorce. Even when sometimes the church is not kind. I mean, can we even imagine what it felt like for this woman to realize that God is lovingly, patiently, and kindly on her side? 
It is a reminder of a very important fact that should never be lost on us, church. The children of God embody the kindness of their Father who art in heaven. Children of God embody the kindness of their Father who art in heaven. One of the often glossed over facts, significant facts of this story, is that when she decides she's going to leave and she's going to go and and talk to the village about Jesus, John makes sure that we are reminded, that we know that when she left to, to go to Sychar, she left that bucket right there beside her. You know what that bucket represented? I mean, every time she picked up that bucket in the middle of the day and had to tote that water, eight pounds per gallon, it was a reminder, metaphorically, in that bucket that it was filled with every negative thing that she had ever thought about herself. And not only that, it was filled with every negative thing and thought and word that that village of Sychar had said about her. And in the middle of the day, she's carrying this bucket to the well and she meets the kindness of Christ. You know what I'm convinced of? I'm convinced that we are surrounded by people who are carrying buckets, metaphorically, like that every day. People carrying around buckets. You may never see it. And we spend a lot of money and we spend a lot of energy trying to convince other people that we're okay, but we're carrying around that bucket. And it's full of all of the negative things that we think about ourselves. And it's full of all the negative things that have been said by others about us. And it is kindness that we show to people that begins people to think that there might be an opportunity for them to lay that bucket down and that life might be different. Tom Wright, in writing about a passage of kindness in Ephesians 4, in the beginning of Ephesians 5, in his commentary says, Kindness is a virtue not often enough considered. I mean, when's the last time you prayed to be kind? We pray, make me joyful. Hopefully this last week we prayed for a lot of patience. We pray for love because love is robust. Love's got muscles. It sounds like God. God is love. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, help me in the people that I meet today that I might be kind to them the way that you are kind to me? When's the last time? He's right. Kindness is a virtue not often enough considered, but it remains central to what Christianity is all about. The reason for this is stated clearly at the end of the passage. Kindness is one of the purest forms of the imitation of God. End of quote. People who are being transformed into the character of God. People who are walking in the steps of Jesus, imitating His life as His disciple, possess love and joy and peace and patience and, say it with me, kindness. Now we encourage you, uh, if you haven't done so already, to, to go home to your computer this afternoon and and download the handout and the mpg the memorize pray and glorify for this sermon today Uh, very quickly i'm going to ask you to do three things this week obviously to pray that kindness develop in your life but number one i'm going to ask you to start simple start close i mean we don't have to go out of our way we are surrounded by people every day who could use a dose of kindness some of them are in our bedrooms some of them are in the bedrooms down the hall Some of them live next door to us. Some are in the cubicle next to us. Some 
Some of them are in the, the, the classrooms that we go to on a daily basis. So start simple. Begin to look at the people that are around you every day. Start simple. Start close. Who are the ones in your, your, your sphere of influence that could use a dose of, of purposeful, well-thought-out kindness? And then secondly, bear the burden. You know, a lot of times, because of our culture, we, we look at things through a sort of a uh, it's cost analysis. What is this going to cost me? I can't afford that. Well, when you say you can't afford that, that is another way of saying I will not bear the burden. Because there is no bearing the burden unless there is some bearing of the cost. And you cannot help somebody pick, you know, this uh, uh, about a, um, six weeks ago, uh, Jordan, I, you know, you, you, about the time you hit 59 in life, you think people stop calling you to move furniture, not your son. And so he, they, they bought a couch for a house and uh, they, need, they needed to move the old couch upstairs. He says, Dad. I said, what? He said, can you come help? And so I go over. And, I, you know, I could have bared the burden by saying, you know what, you should hire some people to do that. That would have been the smart thing to do. But I'm going to bear the burden. And part of the weight of the couch fell on me. That's what it means to bear a burden. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul will say in Galatians 6. And the third thing I'm going to ask you to do is to cross lines. One of the most startling things you can do in the entire world is to be kind to somebody who, is, uh, who considers themselves to be your enemy or who treats you poorly or who undervalues you. When you cross the lines, you're doing exactly what God did. Paul tells us when we were still alienated from God, when we were still enemies of God, send His Son in love to die for our sins. More detail on the MPG. You can go get that this afternoon. Start working on it. But You'll remember that I, I mentioned towards the beginning of the sermon that the word for kindness in the Greek language is krestotis. When the early uh, ancient people looked at those first Christians, there was a little bit of confusion because they saw people who were otherworldly kind. It just did not make sense that they would sacrifice and do and bear the burdens and speak and add value and all these kinds of things. They just they didn't understand it. Ironically, the word for Christ is Christos, and the word for kind is Christus. And there were many in the first century who saw the Christians... And because they didn't understand the words, but saw what they were doing, did not call them Christian, Christos, but the kind ones, Christus. Our world needs kindness. Would you agree? Our world needs not random kindness. It's not random kindness that is going to end racism and restore the value of being made in the image and likeness of God to other people. It is not random kindness, but purpose-filled kindness that will end sex trafficking and the abuse of young women and young men. 
whose souls are being destroyed because their bodies are being destroyed. It is kindness that will end abuse and it will end addiction. We're not looking for easy solutions, but kindness is that first step. The church is made up of the kind ones who do this work until the very end. And it is the church whose eyes are trained on the horizon, awaiting the return of the king, whose kindness is evident in the holes that are in his hands and his feet and the piercing of his side. Our world needs kindness. Kindness. 